Chapter Two of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter Two The Pictorial Stage. The elevation of the element of setting to an importance coordinate with that of the elements of character and action, which has rendered the contemporary drama more visual in its appeal than the drama of any earlier period, was occasioned by the combination of two causes, one of which was artistic and the other scientific, yet both of which tended toward that end which is the aim of every epoch-making revolution, namely, a return to nature the first or artistic cause of the revolution in the drama had already been at work for a long time in the other arts to which the drama is allied if we review the history of any of the arts which represent human beings we shall notice that the one feature which distinguishes most clearly their ancient from their modern manifestations is the growing importance which has been bestowed in modern times upon the element of setting ancient art projects its figures abstractly out of place out of time modern art projects them concretely in a particular place at a particular time even in imagination we cannot localize the venus of milo we are forced to look upon her with no sense of where or when but we know that saint gaudens farragut is standing on the bridge of a ship and peering forward into the wind to direct the course of its progress and we know that his lincoln in chicago has just risen from a chair upon the platform at a public assembly and is about to address the audience before him the same distinction may be noted between ancient and modern painting there is no background at all to the figures in pompeian frescoes we see a dozen cupids dancing but we derive no idea whether they are dancing on the greensward or on a marble floor even in the great age of italian painting the background is developed for a merely decorative purpose and is not brought into actual relation with the figures in the foreground leonardo's inscrutable background of jagged rocks and undetermined sky does not help us to decide whether mona lisa is actually indoors or out of doors wherever she is she is certainly not wandering through that lonely and uninhabitable vale i doubt if any of the italians ever painted a greater landscape than that which decorates the distance in the castelfranco madonna of giorgione but in the actual and literal sense that landscape has absolutely nothing to do with the madonna herself or either of her two attendant saints but the dutch who in this regard are the first of modern painters chose to display their human figures in living relation to the landscape or comfortably at home in an interior belonging to them in such a typical modern painting as the angelus of malay the people would lose all meaning if they were taken out of the landscape and the landscape would lose all meaning if it were divested of the people the sense of a definite time and a definite place which ancient art suppresses are here as necessary to the picture as the people themselves or the act of devotion in which they are engaged a similar revolution has been accomplished gradually in the art of literary narrative the earliest tales in the literature of every nation happen once upon a time it does not matter when it hardly matters where medieval stories like the novelle of boccaccio happen either out of doors in a conventional landscape or indoors in a conventional palace but all palaces look alike and every landscape is more decorative than habitable it was only toward the end of the eighteenth century that novelists began to develop their settings in harmony with their action and their characters 
and it was not until the nineteenth century that they began to insist that certain people can accomplish certain deeds only in a certain place and at a certain time such a story for example as mr kipling's inhabitation and forest in which the setting is the prime motive and as it were the hero of the tale is exclusively characteristic of the present age of narrative and could never have been conceived in any former period it was inevitable that this growing sense of the importance of the element of setting as a necessary factor of human life and therefore as an essential detail of art should overtake the drama but its conquest of the drama was deferred until the present age because at no earlier period was the theatre adequately equipped to cope with the demands that it imposed the second or scientific cause of the revolution in the drama was the great wave of practical invention which swept over the nineteenth century and made the modern theatre possible the introduction in quick succession of gas lamps the calcium light and electrical illumination the consequent abolition of the apron stage the invention of the box set the new conception of the proscenium as a picture frame and the stage itself as a picture placed within it the growing zest for actuality in the appointments and the furniture of the stage these practical improvements in the theatre had to be accomplished before the drama could follow the lead of all the other narrative arts in exhibiting characters in action with precise attention to particularities of time and place we derive from a typical greek tragedy no more definite sense of place and time than we derive from looking at the venus of milo the action simply happens we care not when or where in most elizabethan plays the action is exhibited merely as happening on the bare platform of the stage when an actor walks upon the stage he walks into the story when he leaves the stage he leaves the story and we never ask where he has gone to a few of the elizabethans and this is particularly true of shakespeare exhibit a truly modern feeling for setting as an influence on character and action but since their theatre was not equipped to represent setting to the eye they were forced to suggest it to the imagination in passages of descriptive poetry whenever we need to know the exact place or the exact hour of a scene shakespeare has to tell us in his lines he does it wonderfully quote, how sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank unquote or quote, tis now the very witching time of night unquote. but on the modern stage we do all this with scenery and lighting and make the same effect directly by pictorial rather than indirectly by literary means the tragedies of corneille and racine could all be played in a single stage set the conventional hall of a conventional palace moliere in his entire series of comedies and farces used only three distinct stage sets one the public square of an old italian comedy in which are situated all the houses of all the leading characters another conceived vaguely out of doors in the country and the third representing a room in a house when the action happens in a room as in la tartuffe the set is not designed particularly to represent the personality of the man who owns the house nor the habits of the people who live in it furthermore it is the only room in the whole house that is imagined to exist and when a character leaves the stage he does not go into an adjacent room but walks boldly out of the story but for every act of every play in the contemporary theatre we imagine a particular set that is entirely new and is devised especially to fit the action and to complement the characters we know exactly what is beyond every door and every window and when an actor passes through a door we know where he is going 
we select and arrange the furniture for the insight it will give into the habits and the taste of the person to whom the room belongs. We keep a most careful accounting of time and indicate its passage by minute gradations in the lighting. We convey as much as we possibly can by visual means, and we rely upon the lines only when the appeal to the eye has reached its limit. It is an axiom of art that a new opportunity imposes a new obligation, and the artist in the modern theatre is obliged to make his setting tell as much of his story as it can be made to tell. No better illustration of this point has been afforded in recent seasons than the novel and charming set devised by Mr. Lewis and Parker for his pleasant little comedy of happiness, Pomander Walk. The stage exhibited five little Queen Anne houses arranged in a crescent beside the loitering Thames, and inhabited by a dozen or more delectable people wearing the picturesque old costumes of 1805, and the narrative was woven out of the humorous and sentimental threads of their several life stories. Divested of its setting, this exquisite little piece could not possibly be presented. The play would lose all its meaning if it should lose its scenery. In the modern theatre we have learned to convey abstract ideas by visual business, as Mr. Augustus Thomas conveys his ideas about nervous and hysterical disease by the business of the cat's eye jewel in the last act of the witching hour, or as he explains his theory of the influence of colors on the human temperament in the third act of the harvest moon. We have learned to draw character completely to the eye, without the use of words, as Sir James Barry, at the opening of What Every Woman Knows, makes us fully acquainted with the personal traits of all three of Maggie's brothers in the three or four minutes that elapse before the first line of the play is spoken. In Herman Bear's The Concert, the theme and the entire story of the play are summed up and uttered eloquently to the eye in a period of protracted silence which culminates at the second curtain fall. Whereas the poetry of the drama was formerly expressed exclusively in the lines, it is now expressed mainly through the pictorial appurtenances of the stage. It is by no means true that the drama has lost its capacity for expressing poetry. It has merely altered its means of expressing it. Mr. Belasco's original one-act version of Madame Butterfly was fully as poetic as the Elizabethan plays of Fletcher, whose verse still haunts our ears with melody as it echoes through the silence of three centuries. Poetry, in a large and general sense, may be defined as that solemn, tremulous happiness that overcomes us when we become unwittingly and poignantly aware of the existence and the presence of the beautiful. Poetry thus conceived may be expressed through the medium of any art, and Raphael is assuredly no less a poet, though he may never have written that fabled century of sonnets and poetry may be conveyed as fittingly through our new art of making plays as through the rich and resonant medium of Elizabethan verse. In my entire experience of playgoing, I remember no more poetic moment in the theatre than that moment in the first act of Monsieur Metterling's Sister Beatrice, as produced at the new theatre in New York, when the Prince Bellador appears to Beatrice through the open doorway, and the audience looks afar through a tracery of half-imagined trees to a sky of blue awakening to grey and palpitant with a single throbbing star. In Elizabethan times it was necessary that every playwright should be able to express himself in verse. Nowadays a different equipment is required for the task of making plays. The contemporary theatre demands a vividness of visual imagination 
which has never in any other age been demanded of the dramatist. As the drama has reduced its reliance on the purely literary, it has increased its reliance on the purely pictorial. If it demands less of the imagination of the writer, it demands more of the imagination of the painter. But this state of affairs has arisen only within the memory of the present generation of playgoers, and the art of designing stage scenery may, therefore, fairly be denominated the youngest of all the arts. This art is still so young, and is being developed so rapidly year by year, that it is as yet extremely difficult to codify its leading principles. But three of these, at least, seem certain to subsist through any future unfolding of the art, and these three may safely be formulated at the present time. First of all, the scenic artist must always plan his set to meet the narrative exigencies of the action. This fact imposes on him many limitations to which the usual painter of landscapes or interiors is not submitted. But as a compensation, it offers to him many suggestions at the outset of his work which may prove stimulating to his instinct of invention. If a pistol is to be thrown through a window, as at the climax of the city, the window must be set in a convenient and emphatic place. If an important letter is to be written, a desk must be set in such a situation as to reveal the facial expression of the actor who is to write it. The number and the place of the doors to a room are conditioned by the narrative nature of the entrances, and the arrangement of trees and rocks in a landscape must conform to the needs of the actors in the traffic of the stage. The late Clyde Fitch, who always planned his own scenery, was exceedingly deft in devising settings that would aid the business of his narrative. In his last play, The City, he contrived a set for the first act that made it possible for him to conduct an extended and important scene with no actors on the stage. He slanted a room so that two walls only were exhibited to the audience, one of which was pierced with sliding doors, opening on a hallway which disclosed a flight of stairs leading to an upper story. The elder Rand in the play made an exit into the hallway after which he was heard to drop heavily to the floor, and subsequently a hurried passing by of many people in the hall, with sentences half interjected through the open doors, revealed to the audience that Rand had died suddenly of heart failure. On the other hand, in the production of The School for Scandal at the New Theatre, the setting of the screen scene was faulty because it hampered the business of the play. A staircase was devised elaborately to lead upward into the apartment of Joseph Surface from an outer door imagined under the stage, and this staircase was so arranged that every actor at his exit was obliged to turn his back to the audience and launch his final line over his shoulder. Thereby, the sharp wit of Sheridan's exit speeches was impaired. Even if the stairway had been turned about, the entrance speeches of the actors would have been discounted similarly by the concealment of their faces. The only logical conclusion is that the staircase, which is clearly implied in Sheridan's lines, should have been imagined off the stage, as it was in Sheridan's own day at Drury Lane, beyond an entrance door in the set itself. The second duty or opportunity of the scenic artist, according as we view the case, is to make his set so to conform to the mood of the play that it will reveal immediately through its visual appeal to the audience as much as possible of the essential nature of the action. Contemporary dramatists depend upon their scenery to localize their plays in place and time, and to suggest the emotional spirit in which the story must be viewed. What Shakespeare did in long descriptive passages of verse, like the first speech of the banished duke in As You Like It, 
or the exquisite description of a moonlight night which opens the last act of the merchant of venice is now done without any lines at all by the artist who designs the scenery under modern conditions the stage set of a room may often be made visually descriptive of the character who is supposed to inhabit it thus in the first act of the music master the personality of the hero was revealed before his entrance by the aspect of the room in which he lived a shabby room in an east side boarding house with a mantelpiece supplied with many knick-knacks which were marvelously selected to reveal the nature of the man who owned them the duality of mood which dominates the whole play of the witch which was presented at the new theatre is indicated at the outset by the stage set of the first act this set exhibits a forlorn and barren landscape punctuated in the foreground by an apple tree in full blossom and the aspect of the setting suggests at once the general atmosphere of grave and gray new england which permeates the play relieved only by the single florid figure of the young impassioned heroine the third and perhaps the most important preoccupation of the modern scenic artist is to devise a set within which the natural grouping of the actors at every moment of the play will arrange itself in conformity with the laws of pictorial composition the leading lines of the stage picture should converge on certain points which may be utilized in the most important business of the act in this exigency which is similar to that which is submitted to by every master of graphic composition the scenic artist is aided greatly by his ability to effect a mechanical focus of light upon any selected detail of his stage picture except in scenes imagined to progress in the full unchanging light of noon he may emphasize one section or another of the stage by the deft employment of electric lights but whenever this recourse to mechanics is denied him he may accomplish his effective emphasis by the graphic expedient of converging lines it should be evident from these notes that the new art of designing stage scenery is very intricate and difficult but that it offers possibilities for pictorial appeal which as yet have hardly been completely realized the advantages of being permitted to render a picture in three dimensions instead of one and of being allowed to alter the lighting of the picture almost at will afford the followers of the new art obvious opportunities which are denied the ordinary painter but the attendant difficulties of the art are great because of the threefold limitation to which the scenic artist must evermore submit End of chapter two